This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Tobacco dependence frequently requires repeated courses of treatment in order to reach long-term smoking abstinence. It's difficult to obtain both initial abstinence and even more difficult to achieve long-term success. For the average patient, up to 80% are unable to remain abstinent from smoking for more than six months. Then there are patients who have tried just about everything to stop smoking and have been unsuccessful. Our topic today will be management of nicotine dependence. And our guest today is Dr. Taylor Hayes, a general internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine and Director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Taylor. Hello, Daryl. Well, how about patients who say, I'm going to stop smoking, they just stop cold turkey? How successful are they? And that's, in fact, most patients do stop because they think that's the most effective way to do it. If you, the data varies a little bit. but So in, in general numbers, if you look at those patients a year later, 2%, perhaps 3% are not smoking. So the, obviously the vast majority relapse. Yeah, dismal results. It, yeah, not good. Yeah. How about those who say, I'm going to try tapering off? Is that any more effective? Um, if they don't use any support, uh, it, no, no more effective than simply stopping cold turkey. Uh, that is, a, 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 you know, an unassisted quit attempt, whether or not it's abrupt or or tapering, would result in the same two to three percent at a year. So it sounds like the general theme here is if you're going to try to do this yourself, the success rate is pretty low. It is, and in fact, but that's how most people still quit. And, and if you ask most smokers, that's still how they want to quit. They think that's the right way to quit. Um, and in fact, a lot of clinical providers would feel similarly that they mm -hmm. they think um, cold turkey, no support, is really the best way to do it. I know in my patient population, I've had a rare patient who was successful on their first or even second attempt, and I know this varies quite a bit, but. How many attempts do most patients make before they're actually successful, if they're successful? Oh, many, many. You know, I've had some patients tell me a hundred, dozens. Five to ten is probably a reasonable uh, number, and the basic message is it takes a number of attempts, and mm -hmm. it, it relapse is common. Okay. Well, let's talk about some pharmacologic treatments that are available for treating nicotine dependence, and we'll talk about the advantages and disadvantage of each. Let's start with the nicotine products. Uh, I think one of the first products that came out was a nicotine gum. Um, how effective has that been? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was the first nicotine replacement product released in the U.S., and it was a long time ago. I think it was maybe 1982 or three. Mm -hmm. So um, it is effective if you, we've had obviously a long experience with nicotine gum. As a single agent, uh, the odds of successful quitting at six months uh, about 1.5 or about a 50% greater odds of successful abstinence with nicotine gum versus a placebo treatment, for mm -hmm. example, in the studies. I've got one patient in particular that I'm thinking about who um, actually found the gum successful in getting him to quit smoking, but uh, he can't stop the gum. Mm -hmm. That So that does happen. I would have to say in, in, in my clinical experience and in, in the literature, that's uncommon. 
and my approach to those patients, and so you, you can, this is free, Daryl, for you. All right. You talk to this patient. If the patient is not smoking and they're not distressed by their continued use, because he probably is, he is hooked, he's dependent right. yep. on, on the gum, uh, and it's not causing any health problems, and it would be very unusual for health problems to occur. Um, I don't push them to quit the nicotine replacement product. I know some people feel very uncomfortable about that, but it's almost impossible, in fact it is, from the literature, impossible to show that long-term use of nicotine replacement causes health harms. Mm -hmm. um, and if you feel that um, there are no health harms and you feel that he would continue to be at risk for relapse to smoking if you had him quit, then by all means he should continue to yeah, use. And that's what I've done. I haven't pushed him. He's been doing this for now about eight, nine years. And uh, I figure it's much safer than him smoking. It is. And I, I anecdotes uh, are worth you know that, that one story. But a very poignant story for me was a man who was addicted to nicotine nasal spray that we had put him on and he had been on nicotine patch and others but and stopped those after several months and was on nicotine nasal spray and it was clear that he was addicted to it he was using oh maybe six to ten sprays a day mm -hmm. he had a history of severe copd had been hospitalized multiple times had even been on ventilator support at one point and uh, was doing great from a COPD point of view. And I followed him for a while from a distance and he would call me for refills and, and I would we would talk to him on the phone, one of our counselors would, and I would refill the medication. I lost touch with him and he continued to get refills for a while from his doctor. But after about two years, for some reason, either he changed physicians or his doctor got very concerned that he was addicted to nicotine nasal spray. He said, I won't refill it anymore. Hmm. He did relapse to smoking hmm. and his COPD immediately flared and he was started back in that cycle of hospitalizations. And so um, I learned from that very early on in, in my career that the, the therapeutic target is not to smoke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think transdermal patches came out maybe, what, 10 years later. Mm -hmm. um, have they had any advantages over the gum? I mean, the advantage over any of the short-acting nicotine replacement therapies like gum and now lozenge, which is very similar to gum, it just doesn't require the chewing, um, uh, or the, the the inhaler nasal spray. The advantage over for the patch is that you don't have to think about it. It's transdermal, very slow absorption through the skin. You put it on once, and you only change it once a day. Mm -hmm. So that's the nice part of the transdermal patch. the The downside of transdermal patch is that you can't use it to respond to urges when they occur, and so we often combine the patch with the short-acting nicotine replacement therapy just like we do with other treatments. So think about basal insulin mm -hmm. and then short-acting insulin for meals. Uh, it's a similar approach or long-acting pain relief. I know we, we're cautious about opioids, but for people with serious chronic pain, we, we often have used a basal plus rescue therapy. So it's that kind of approach. So a person could use nicotine patch and then if intermittently throughout the day if urges occur, they can use nicotine gum or lozenge or one of the other short-acting mm -hmm. on top of it. So we're giving patients nicotine. Have you used the electronic nicotine dispensing devices to help patients stop? I mean, that's what the ads are promoting. 
They are, and they're, they're implying they can't make the specific health claim that they can help people stop smoking, but, but it's pretty clear that they're implying that, and patients are using it for that. I don't advise it just because the data is so unclear um, about whether or not that's an effective approach and safe. And I think for me, it's the long-term safety. So given our discussion a moment ago about the therapeutic target is not to smoke, and I'm not too worried about people on long-term nicotine replacement therapy, I don't know what would happen if someone went on to long-term electronic cigarette Mm -hmm. treatment and wasn't smoking. I, I do feel that their risk of health harm would be less than if they were smoking, but probably significantly greater than if they were using therapeutic nicotine replacement therapy from a pharmacy. Sure. Well, I can picture a patient getting a tremendous dose of nicotine if they're using the patch. Maybe they add the gum, they start smoking a little bit, and they use an electronic device. Is there a problem when they get an extremely high level of nicotine? Fortunately, nicotine has a really, really wide therapeutic window. And so the chances that someone who had been a chronic user, so very accommodated to the effects of the drug, would have toxicity is very low. The most common symptom that tells me they're probably experiencing some toxicity is nausea. Mm -hmm. So if a person starts getting nausea when I'm treating them with nicotine replacement therapy or if they're doing something that you're talking about, that's probably an indication that their nicotine level periodically gets too high and it's tickling the emesis center and they're having nausea. Um, As you know, naive users can really get nausea. So the story of kids when they experiment dizzy and sick uh, very quickly, but the experienced user who's really accommodated to those impacts very rarely has any toxicity. Very much like an alcoholic. Yes. Okay. This episode is sponsored in part by Giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B, an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to GibLib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash mayoclinic and use promo code MAYOTALKS to receive one month of free access. That's GibLib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot com slash MayoClinic. Well, that's nicotine. How about uh, bupropion, well, butrin? So bupropion is... um an antidepressant, we call it an atypical antidepressant, and we think it works by increasing dopamine in the reward center. It probably has some other impacts as well. Um, and it has been shown to be helpful for people to stop smoking. If you look at the um, outcomes of people who use bupropion as a single agent, not in combination with anything else, and any single agent nicotine replacement therapy, the patch or gum or one of the others, Uh, the outcomes are about the same. Mm -hmm. About a 50 to 60% improvement in six-month abstinence rates compared with placebo or no treatment. So it is effective. um, And uh, in patients who um, have a history of depression, I think maybe it's preferred. There is some data to suggest that those patients uh, will less likely get um, low moods 
when they're quitting. And sometimes that does happen, especially in people with history of depression. So if you have a person who's had a history of major depression and you treat them only with nicotine replacement therapy, they're likely to get low mood and that may result in relapse. It's mm -hmm. less likely to happen with bupropion. And the only other advantage I'd see for bupropion is that um, it seems to reduce the post-cessation weight gain that people experience. Uh, it, and it definitely is better than nicotine replacement therapy in, in that sense. And so if someone is very weight concerned, they typically say, well, I'd, if I gain a few pounds, I probably will start smoking again. Bupropion may be an excellent choice for them. Hmm. Okay. And then how about uh, Varenicline or Shantix? Mm -hmm. So it's the newest, it was, but it's been around a long time now. It's been, it was released in 2006. And it works in a unique way. It, it is a, what's called partial agonist. So there's a, the nicotinic receptor, this, the, the alpha-4, beta-2, which is the, it is the high affinity receptor we think is responsible for the addicting properties of nicotine. When it's activated, activates the reward center, and that's what causes the positive reinforcement for using tobacco and, and the nicotine in tobacco. Um, this drug, it partially stimulates that receptor, so they get a little bit of impact from that. And then it, it remains on the receptor and blocks it from being stimulated anymore. So it does both. It's a little bit of agonist mm -hmm. uh, stimulation and then blocking effect. And it's very effective. It, it results in abstinence rates that are um, two to three times. So uh, uh, 100 to 200% better outcomes at six months compared with placebo treatment. And in head-to-head -head tests now against nicotine patch and against bupropion, it performs better in those randomized trials. Is there a black box warning with that drug? It carried a black box warning for a number of years and only in the past, uh, oh, I think it was in 2018, possibly 2017, but it's been about a year to two years that the, the warning has been removed. And that warning had to do with um, neuropsychiatric adverse effects. So people who did not even have a history of psychiatric illness uh, had behavior changes, uh, suicidal thoughts, and even suicidal behaviors. Um, there was a very large study that was published in 2016 looking at bupropion, patch, nicotine patch, and varenicline compared with each other and to placebo. And they um, accrued 8,000 patients in that study, 2,000 patients in each of those four arms. And half of the patients who recruited had mental illness history. And the point of the study really, really to look at the safety question this, that caused the, the boxed warning. Uh, and in, the outcome of that was, first of all, varenicline seemed to be uh, superior to bupropion and nicotine patch for the abstinence outcomes, but it also there were no safety issues. The risk of having neuro, neuropsychiatric symptoms was the same with each, and they were very low rates of all of those symptoms with all of the treatments. Hmm. Do you ever combine pharmacologic agents? Yeah, we do. So, it, 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 you know, these drugs um, work in different ways, and that often gives you an opportunity to see, well, maybe there's some either additive or even synergistic effects between them. And so there have been studies that have looked at uh, bupropion and varenicline together, and those two drugs appear to work best together in people who, have, who are highly dependent um, uh, and typically heavy smokers. So if you in the light smoker, um, low dependent smoker, it, probably that combination therapy is not needed, but 30 pack, 30 cigarettes a day, um, very highly dependent, 
uh, that combination would be helpful. People have also looked at nicotine replacement therapy along with bupropion or with uh, varenicline, and those combinations appear to be also effective and may have some additive effect. Okay. How effective are we as a primary care health care provider in getting our patients to discontinue tobacco? So I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna discourage providers. I think we we do a reasonably good job. It, there are all kinds of things on our plates when we're dealing with patients, and even though some of the conditions we're dealing with might be tobacco related, it's it's sometimes hard to bring it up as to the top of the list. Um, so I really think we need to develop systems approaches to help mm-hmm. us um, treat them. Uh, and we're working on some of those. And now with our electronic health record, those some of those systems approaches really are in our grasp. Um, I would say that most providers probably feel a bit discouraged. They feel that they're inexpert at counseling, and so they don't do it. And they feel uncertain about the drugs, and they and they don't use them, or they use them too too little or, or not for long enough. Uh, so... I encourage people to, it's like any other treatment, get familiar and comfortable with a, with a couple of these. If, if you say, I, I could get comfortable with nicotine patch and then add gum, get comfortable with that, look at the some of the literature. Similarly for varenicline, um, and, and then um, provide just basic supportive counseling. It, it can be no more than, I really advise you to quit smoking, and and I'm very willing to help you, and there are some things that can help you do it. Yeah. You don't have to be a professional counselor. It seems like from what you said earlier, though, that this dependence is so strong that it's effective only when you put a lot of effort into it, whether it's from the provider or from counselors. But uh, for us to just tell a patient, stop smoking, or here, take this prescription, go away, probably not going to be all that effective. Yeah, it's not worth less. So you were asking me earlier, what's the rate of quitting if people just do it on their own with no support, two to three percent? If a doctor gives advice and says, I'll give you this medication, this may help you, you actually double that. It's now five to six percent. So it's not worthless. The patients do listen to that, but uh, not as effective as some of these other approaches Mm -hmm. that we talked about. Yeah. I know in the past when we did more chest x-rays, uh, you'd sometimes find a little uh, area of concern and lead to a CT scan. That would get the patient quite concerned. Um, that often led to them saying, I'm through, especially mm-hmm. you know if it came back negative, uh, I'm through smoking. And in some, it seemed to be effective for long term. Others, it seemed like it was short term. But uh, I don't know if that really has ever been looked at, of finding a health scare. Does that, uh, does that so help? So... So there's data on both sides, and I think we'll, we'll accumulate data through now lung cancer screening. So um, as most people know, uh, CT screening, low-dose CT screening is now recommended for people who have been heavy smokers and are over a certain age. And there are specific criteria. What we don't know um, in our lung cancer screening programs is the question that you just asked. If people get a good report, does that... Right. What what effect does that have? Does that say, wow, I dodged a bullet, yeah. maybe I should quit smoking? Or does it say, oh, wow, I dodged a bullet, I think I can keep smoking? Right. We don't know the answer to that. There's some data from some other sources to suggest that health scares often get people's attention and help them quit. So, for example, in the hospital, if you come with a, an acute myocardial infarction and you're a smoker, the chances that you'll stop smoking in the next six months are about 50%. 
So it's obviously very attention getting. Sure. Um, and and some illnesses are like that. Now, does that mean that those patients are um, at low risk for relapse because they remember that? Not necessarily. Yeah. Are there counseling groups or support groups in the community where patients can go to help them stop smoking? Some communities have them, most don't. There, there is a Nicotine Anonymous, or NA, that um, is available in some communities. Uh, some communities will have tobacco treatment available, um, and the hospital may support some group support groups. We have a s- small group support program that we provide through our Nicotine Dependence Center, but, um, but not usually. And so what I often ask patients to do is uh, to try to get that support online. And there's a, um, actually a website that we work with. Mayo Clinic has provided content, and we are uh, partners with them. It's called Truth Initiative, and the website is called becomenx.org.org. And they have in there a support community, quit plan, and other things. So if people can't access care in other ways online, mm-hmm. they can usually find there are some bad things, but I can vouch for Become an X because, again, Mayo Clinic has provided a lot of the content for that. Okay. An X, E-X? Yeah, Become an E-X, all, okay. all one word, dot O-R-G. All right. Finally, one last question. There are a lot of devices and treatment recommendations out there, many of them online, that uh, promote smoking cessation. Are there things out there that are very unlikely to help patients? Oh, there are a host of things that are unlikely to help patients. The vast majority of them, it's difficult to make definitive statements because they've never been subjected to any sort of evidence that we would agree together. That makes sense. It looks like it actually does work. And so uh, everything from devices, uh, things that you clip on your ear or laser or hypnosis, which has been looked at in randomized studies and doesn't seem to help, uh, just as a funny anecdote, I've had some patients, uh, more than a handful, who've been to someone, and I don't know if he's still operating, in Boston who was called the Mad Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and he would take people in and do <clears throat> hypnosis of a sort and other things, and, and they would walk out apparently um, never to smoke again. It didn't work for most of the patients I saw, as you might guess. <laughs> Well, we've been discussing the management of nicotine dependence with Dr. Taylor Hayes, an internist and director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Taylor, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. It's been fun. Thanks, Daryl. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. We release a new podcast weekly, each covering a different medical topic pertinent to the primary care provider. You can find us at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.